If ever you go to Dublin town in a hundred years or so, inquire for me in Baggett Street and what I was like to know. He was a queer one, full of little Ido. He was a queer one, and I'll tell you. Hello and welcome to If Ever You Go, a Northside Dublin Perspective. My name is Pat Lynch and I hope you will join me as we journey through the Dublin One City One Book selection for 2014 entitled If Ever You Go, a Map of Dublin in Poetry and Song. In this programme we continue our literary journey of Northside Dublin and will be focusing on the areas of Hoth and Malahide. The poems featured in this programme are Feltrum Hill by Patrick McDonough Here We Go Now by Liam O'Mortal on the Strand of Hote by Podrick Pierce, and we begin now with High Tide at Malahide by Oliver St. John Gogarty, read by Michael Sharp. The luminous air is wet as if the moon came through to hold as in a net such as the spider set by ditch and rivulet. The grey unfallen dew, the sun is not down yet, as yet the eve is new. The water is all a quiver, there scarce is room to stand beside the tidal river, so narrowed is the strand. And over there, the wood is standing in a flood, erect and upside down, and at its roots, a swan. A silvern mist enhances by tangling half the light, the glowing bay's expanses which else had been too bright, for air is subject to a tidal ebb and flow. That was Michael Sharp reading High Tide at Malahide by deceased poet Oliver St. John Gogarty. And now, to discuss the poem, is Dr. Philip Coleman from the Trinity College School of English. He began by discussing the structure of the poem. I find this poem very difficult to read aloud. You expect it to go on a bit longer than it does. You have these two very richly rhymed first stanzas full of rhymes. The first stanza, of course, we have wet and net, set, rivulet, yet, through, dew, new, and so on. The second stanza follows a similar pattern. The third stanza, though, seems to come to an abrupt halt with the lines, for air is subject to a tidal ebb and flow. Makes you wonder if Gogarty, who was, of course, full of mischief and has been immortalised in James Joyce's Ulysses as Buck Mulligan. Of course, he's a well-known writer on his own terms too. But um, it's hard not to imagine that Gogarty's having a bit of fun here, even though the poem has a strange kind of feel, a strange tone and atmosphere. The reason I think he's having a certain amount of fun and being a little bit mischievous here is because of its dedication to Lynn Doyle, And Lynn Doyle is um, actually the pseudonym of a writer, a Northern Irish writer called Leslie Alexander Montgomery, who was famous during the middle decades of the 20th century for, um, especially for a series of books, kind of satirical books, um, called the Ballygullion Ballygullion, uh, novels. But Lynn Doyle's pseudonym was actually Lynn C. Doyle. In other words, Lynn C. Doyle. And I think uh, Gogarty's having a bit of fun here with his fellow writer, Lynn Doyle, who lived in Malahide. So this poem was published 
in the United States in 1944, at a time when Gogarty lived there. And you have the feeling, in a way, that he's thinking about Malahide from afar and writing this almost as a kind of postcard to his friend Lynn, or Leslie, back in Malahide. So the poem is very full of rhyme and beautiful music and imagery. The luminous air is wet, very sensuous, as if the moon came through to hold us in a net such as the spider set by ditch and rivulet, the grey unfallen dew. It is a very sensuous poem, but it comes to an abrupt halt in the third stanza. It seems to be two or three lines short of its conclusion. And it's hard not to believe that Gogarty uh, might might not have been having some, some fun with that. Philip discussed the ending of the poem. Yeah, no, the, the end of the poem signals a change in mood, for sure. The sensuousness of the first two stanzas seems to fall away. And perhaps then it's appropriate that it should end in the way it does. For air is subject to a tidal ebb and flow. Perhaps Gogarty here is thinking about the air of music the air of lyric poetry, which goes along singing, if you like, for a certain period of time and then falls away, gives way to a different kind of music, a different kind of voice, uh, one that is more sombre, one that is perhaps uh, more inclined towards meditation and silence. And so in that regard, maybe this is an appropriate conclusion to a poem that begins with such a a rush of sensuous detail. But as you say, towards the end, it seems to dim. The light seems to dim. And the ebb and flow of the poem, if you like, has has occurred. Uh, the poem has flowed into being with this rich and very moist, very wet kind of language at the start. And then settled down, uh, giving way to a silence that concludes the poem and which is the inevitable place beyond its final word. And now to read Feltrum Hill by Patrick McDonough is Mary McNamara. The land around is all so flat that Feltrum makes a noted hill and you may look far out to sea standing by the mill. Here once by hedged and dusty lanes the rustling acres made their way, and none who met but blessed the load and passed the time of day. Within the shadow of this ark the miller watched to see them climb, the white dust drifted in the sun as to the end of time. The ploughman at Kinsale stood to watch the lumbering sails go round. They turned, contended to his toil, knowing whose corn was ground. Lovely and strong, these wine-darked walls preserve intact their circle still. But time has rung that wheel of life whose hub was Feltrum Hill. The sails of forty feet are gone, the dome is fallen, and on high the great rack bears its idle fangs against a cruel sky. And now to discuss this poem, we are joined once again by Dr. Philip Coleman. We began by discussing the imagery in the last line of the poem. Feltrum Mill 
you know, you would wonder why the poem wasn't called Fel- Feltrum Mill instead of Feltrum Hill. But Feltrum Mill was this remarkable mill built, I believe, in the 1600s and which was used for centuries as a very important um, place in Ireland. In fact, at the end of the 18th century, a long time ago, uh, laws were introduced, they were called the Corn Laws, which banned the export of flour from Ireland to the UK, to to England. Um, and as a result of this, mills like Feltrum Mill fell into disuse, and so over time it became a ruin. The sales of the mill were blown off in what's known in Irish history as Iha Guihamur, the night of the big wind, in 1839. The Sales were blown off. And so when McDonough seized the mill, which I think was demolished in the 1970s, um, some parts of it still remain. The idle fangs against a cruel cruel sky, he describes in the closing lines, are presumably the the, uh, sails, the remains of the sails of the mill. In the second last stanza, he talks about the wine-dark walls which preserve intact their circles still. It's said that the walls inside Feltrum Mill were designed, built and painted by Dutch builders who came to Ireland especially for that purpose in the early 1600s. So it must have been a remarkable site and for a long time it played a very important role to the socio-economic life of the community around Feltrum. So the poem um, takes the vantage point, I suppose, of the speaker McDonough in the 1920s or 30s, uh, looking at the area around Feltrum Hill, looking at its flatness, looking at the ruin of the mill, and imagining what he calls the white dust drifted in the sun as to the end of time, imagining in a way that the activity that went on in the mill, the grinding of corn to make flour, that in some way that it has continued to colour the landscape. And he's right, of course, these things, even when they are ruins, they persist in different ways in our imagination, but also in our experience of place, uh, place names and local lore stories about places are often very much, um, you know, rooted in events and things that go a long way back. So the cruelty of the closing line and that image is a very strong one. It's perhaps a rather gothic kind of image. Um, um, But I think in that it speaks to the way in which McDonough says that things which have died, things that have no longer, uh, things that are no longer being used still continue to haunt us um, in ways that are very difficult to understand. We asked Philip about the pace reflected in the language of the poem. The poem is written in six four-line stanzas. There's no obvious kind of break between one part and the next, but you're right. There, In a way, it is two poems in one. It's a poem about Feltrum Hill, but it's also a poem about Feltrum Mill. It's a poem about the present experience of this, the place called Feltrum Hill, but it's also a poem about the past and about the ways in which the hill and indeed the mill were part of the experience of that place um, over time. You're right, the poem does kind of slow down, um, maybe in the way that a mill wheel might. Um, It slows down as we move into its second half, 
with the image of the ploughman standing to watch the lumbering sails go round. And there's a sense in which we too are invited in that imagery of the circle and the wheel of life. We're invited also to kind of slow down with the speaker and indeed with the poet and to observe this particular moment in time and also this particular uh, point in history. Um, So that the mill wheel and the sails of the mill seem to kind of slow down before us as we read this and we're asked to consider something that is in fact now gone so it is a poem of of many parts it plays with ideas of the present and the past the idea of place and history it is a strange poem um and it begins also in a way that seems rather unpromising when he says in the opening stanza, the land around is all so flat that Feltrum makes a noted hill, he's, of course, drawing our attention to the fact that Feltrum stands out. It's a noted hill within this kind of flat landscape. But that opening line doesn't inspire you that in the sense that you're not, you don't expect to find something remarkable in this landscape, but he finds it. And that's one of Patrick McDonough's great gifts um, that he does look on the Irish landscape and find things really worth paying attention to within it. McDonough has had a number of very strong advocates in recent years. The important contemporary poet Derek Mahan has prepared an edition of his work, for example, and the Gallery Press under Peter Fallon have also kind of resuscitated, revived interest in Patrick McDonough's work. He is, um, in critical terms, a somewhat neglected figure, but a poem like Feltrum Hill shows that it's worth reading him not only for his own reputation, but also because he reminds us of the richness of our surrounding landscape. Liam O'Mortal reads and discusses his poem, Here We Go Now. Here we go now west on the narrow cliff edge, walking towards Hoth on a sunny evening. A profusion of purple heather and bell heather, the school in the mouth of the cliff, on a gliding mission far from home. Gulls, and turns scatter. Pleasant to be in Hoth, our mouths taste of the sweetness of honeysuckle, the humour of Fenian lays colouring our minds, Odine, woman crazy, the Greek king's daughter, who appeared on the waves below with a fleet of Amazons, all the unmade films of Tarantino. Strollers enjoying the infinite diversity of heather, firs, islands, headlands, Eather, Havad, Hoth, Dun Cliffin, Bailey, which I print out one after the other just as they are, as they stand against the foaming current of tide, yet all part of an entire web of light between Kish yonder, the Muglins, Dun Laira, for years now, the landmarks of our own port town. Pleasant to be in Hoth on an evening when all is clear, not a breath of wind to disturb a feather or fill a sail. Let's leave it to the gods. Aeolus will keep us close to the wind as we head for home. Liam, to talk about the poem itself, it's um, on one level starts off on a very quite amicable, nice stroll through Hoth and then it brings in a lot more so the historical aspect comes in yeah it, it, it does but it's also I'm just reading it myself and I, mean, I haven't read it for a while but it's a sort of a poem I for me like Hoth 
is, you know, I'm I'm not from Dublin at all, like, but Hoth is a, is a huge um, cultural landmark in many respects. You know, besides being a geographic and sailing landmark, etc. You know, so I, I remembered um, the in, in some of the old older Irish language poetry. There's ref- there are major references to um, to Hoth and to Binay. There's Irish, but my idea was, in, in a sense. I was trying to sort of figure out where I'm from or mm. where home is. I'm not where I'm from, but where home is, you know. Um, I was reading, actually, the American poet in the last few days, Robert Frost, and he has a thing about home. He says, home is a place where when you have to go there, they have to take you in, you know. <laughs> I was trying to come to terms myself with the idea of being an Irish language writer and being and and living living in Dublin, really, to be honest, and living in and North Dublin, see what what I could find. Uh, you know, it, it's got the the image of the school on a gliding mission far from home. You know, yeah. so, but it it's sort of cinematic as well. It is. It yeah, is. I mean, in a sense, I suppose the Tarantino reference is that there's a it's a humorous reference in the sense that um that i would i would have thought like that the the the, the fleet of amazons below on the rocks coming in a fleet of of, of women yeah. coming in uh would appeal to a guy like tarantino if he was to mm. make a film and the unmade film is sort of that the irish language tradition wouldn't be able to support you know a cinema a cinematic version of that i suppose one of the problems with the poem for me um is that it refers to another poem which influenced me greatly when I was a young man in the sense that um, there was a poet called Sean O'Reardown who wrote a poem called Feel a Reach, which is, you know, ter- come back to Kerry. Mm. It's sort of, so it refers really to the west of Ireland or southwest of Ireland, but it's trying to come to grips with the place itself. Yes, yeah. Rather than sort of say, you know, you, you know, let's leave it to the gods, really. Like, the gods are going to look after us and bring us home, you know, and nothing much else, you know. So, and also, I suppose I was consciously um, trying to bring in the layers of of language. Like, mm. there are many layers of language. And the Irish language is only one of the layers. Yes. And there's the Scandinavian elements, etc. There's the English language element. Now, you did mention, as you said, that it is a translation. Mm. And I know you said initially that yeah. you felt maybe there was more rhythm in the Irish version. So yeah. maybe if you want to I'll, finish with, I'll have with a the go, Irish I'll version. I'll have a go at it anyway and see what it is. Sáhanishling fáir cael na hala síir tráhnóna gréna ar vín éadar fáivrat fríg chorkra is lochlanach tí chéile is mérlach na mara imeal na hala ar rúhar fólwinach i vada vaila is caipa gyurog is fúilin. Even ve imín éadar Blas mala ir ar miela on tahelen, is blas ella in ar gown el giraun na feine, on dine an bochel bade, in in rine grege, a nocht lena kaulach ban hees fuin er a dide, is na skanain na denfer a yenach Tarantino. In ar spastori bun sasof as diversach domadul frig, atin inchacha chantire, eder havad hoth. Dun Griffin Bailey, a chloe mamach in a glow cart as a chale, in a go has of less throat is false a bart, sigresan, omelon, silche, either in Heshimo, the Muglini, Dun Lera, Markana, or Gala Bailefain, Leblento. Even vet me in the other, Tronona Glenich, Gan Miam, a scap of clatter, a lenoch shawl. 
Fogmist fessen dehes, scholig eolus, farschen er rollenching, a weile slon. And now to read and discuss On the Strand of Hote by Podrick Pierce is Aileen Douglas from the Trinity College School of English. On the Strand of Hote breaks a sanding wave, a lone seagull screams above the bay. In the middle of the meadow beside Glass Nevin, the corncrake speaks all night long. There is minstrelsy of birds in Glenus Mall, the blackbird and thrush chanting music. There is shining of sun on the side of Sleeve Rua and the wind blowing down over its brow. On the harbour of Dunleary are boat and ship with sails set ploughing the waves. Here in Ireland am I, my brother, and you far from me in gallant Paris, I beholding hill and harbour, the strand of Howth and Sleeve Rua's side, and you victorious in mighty Paris of the lime-white palaces and the surging hosts. And what I ask of you, beloved, far away, is to think at times of the corncrake's tune beside Glass Nevin in the middle of the meadow, speaking in the night, of the voice of the birds in Glenis Mole, happily with melody chanting music, of the strand of Hoth where a wave breaks, and the harbour of Dunleary where a ship rocks, on the sun that shines on the side of Sleeve Rua, and the wind that blows down over its brow. Aileen, there seems to be so much in this poem in lots of ways. It's, it sets the location, and then it's, but it brings in lots of other places in, in each of those smaller kind of verses as well. Yeah, I sub- it, it really does. And you get a really vivid sense of the speaker of the poet, Porrick Pierce. And it's almost as if he's, you know, painting not just um, a picture for his brother, William, who's away in Paris, uh, but also trying to recreate the sounds of the landscape uh in Hoth, but I mean, it, it sort of goes right around the bay into the Dublin mountains um, and, you know, to to the harbour at Dunleary with the boat uh, rocking. So we follow him, you know, yeah. as he recreates these things for his brother. And I suppose there's, uh, you know, a contrast here between the glamour of Paris, you know, the lime white palaces and the the sort of sense of this great modern city. Mm -hmm. Um, But then the claims of this landscape, you Mm. know, which is, you know, very intimately known by both brothers and the way that recreating the landscape, you know, allows for the assertion of very important bonds between brothers, I think. And of course, they had an exceptionally close bond. That that really comes true. <clears throat> I mean, if the word brother wasn't used, you, you would almost think it's a lover almost. It, it's such a connection there, a sense of connection. It is, there? exactly. And even, you know, um, it, you know, in the Irish, you know, Earth Fane, Agraw, you know, it really, in the Irish, I think those terms of endearment um, come out even more strongly, yeah. really. Uh, but you would think uh, it is a love. It is a love poem, but it's a love poem to a brother mm-hmm. uh, rather than to, uh, you know, a sexual lover. Yes. Uh, yeah. yeah. And then uh, tell us a bit about Patrick Pierce, the poet, because I mean, I know our our first learnings in school about Patrick Pierce are very much around, obviously, the 1916 and that. But and there was that, you know, sense on knowledge that he was a poet, but maybe not explored as much as, as he might have been. 
Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, he had a real desire to to bring people to the Irish language. And uh, I think one of the things that's and he wrote in Irish very simply uh, for people to, 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 to sort of expand the speak, the numbers of speakers of Irish and so on. And I think that this, you know, the translation of the Irish uh, poem uh, carries over into it, into English verse, a lot of the qualities of the Irish. So even the sort of the order of the words, for example, uh, and the syntax are, are quite reminiscent of, of Irish poetry. And, mm. you know, the, so that's a very uh, interesting um, aspect of it. I suppose as well, you know, we see in poems like this um, a tremendous uh, love of nature as well. Um, and uh, which was something that was, you know, very important to Pierce as an educationalist as well, you know, in the school in St. Edna's and uh, this uh, sense of a, a respect for a landscape. Um, and I mean, here it's not quite... Uh, you know, din shockless, the Irish term for the law of place. Uh, but there is a very strong sense of the intimate connection uh, between people um, in uh, and the land that they inhabit. And, you know, obviously uh, human beings, but also corn crakes, blackbirds, thrushes, you know, the sense of our integration into nature. I yeah, suppose. there is. Yeah. A, there's that lovely sense of just being at one with the land, whether it's Ireland or whatever yeah, the land is. Yeah, yeah. And of course, that's something that the brother uh, doesn't have in, in Paris, you mm. know, uh, that there's a sense of it's very much uh, like, you know, the lime white palaces, mighty Paris and so on that, you know, people become separated mm. from where they where they really belong, a kind of deracination or separation. Yes, um, yeah. So, yeah. And, and he, 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 he name checks a lot of places. I mean, there's, yeah. he talked about Glass Nevin, Glass, Glass Namol, Sleeve Rua, yeah. Dunleary, of course, Paris. <laughs> so yeah. all these places obviously mean something to him, to him in some way or other. Yeah, well, I think, I mean, this poem um, was written very early in the 20th century when uh, Willie Pierce was studying in Paris. And uh, that was quite soon after the death of their father. And uh, he's buried in Glasnevin. So that would be a connection, you know, very sort of, well, not private connection, Mm. but obviously, you know, something that both of them would be very aware of, Of you know, as he's writing. Um, And, you know, the the sort of sites in the in the Dublin mountains, very close to Rathfarnham, uh, where the the school would be and Mm. so on. So, you know, there's... um, uh, th- there's a, a kind of uh, it's almost like a tour of their Dublin lives, yeah, yeah. you know. Um, that that sense of standing on Hoad Strand and reflecting on all of this. Yes, yeah, and yeah. and seeing this sort of panoramic vision. Mm. Um, but it's not just you know it's not just scenery. It's not just a panorama. But each of these places would mean something, you know. Um, and it's a complete well, it's not, it's a complete tour if you like. Cause it goes from one end of the bay at Hoth to you know, the other end in, in Dunleary. So, you know, it's sort of a, the whole vast semicircle of it, yeah. Thank you for joining us on If Ever You Go, a Northside Dublin perspective, our exploration of the north side of Dublin through poetry and song. And many thanks to all the guests who featured in this programme. 
For further information on this series, check out nearfm.ie forward slash if ever you go serious. If ever you go to Dublin town in a hundred years or so, inquire for me in Baggett Street and what I was like to know. He was a queer one, full of little Ido. He was a queer one, and I'll tell you. This programme was made with the support of the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland.